The Lost City of Limhi isn't a movie about Central American archaeologists. It's a series of chapters in the Book of Mormon introducing the story of Zenith and his people. We'll discuss what these chapters teach us about several different ancient civilizations, about the Old Testament, and even about Joseph Smith. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome again to Gospel Doctrine. I hope that all of you are faring as well as I am during this time of quarantine. Uh, I have a wonderful wife to spend my days with, and I have as yet suffered no viral infections, although I do have very annoying seasonal allergies. Uh, but I wanted to bring up something about that. If this pandemic has affected you in some way, uh, if you have been, if you have come down with coronavirus, caught that infection, or if you are a healthcare worker working on the front lines. And if you would like to have the faith of the listeners of this podcast engaged on your behalf, then send me an email to gt at com with your first name and your town and a little bit about your situation. And I will read those stories uh, in our next episode and ask for those listening to pray for you. And let's see if we can become a little bit of a community here and and uh, send some love one to another and help call down the powers of heaven to help each other get through this. Uh, oh, and incidentally, you can send to that same email address uh, all of your gospel-related questions. We've got a few questions coming up for the weeks ahead. So let's jump right into this week's lesson. It's titled, In the Strength of the Lord. Our chapters are Mosiah 7 through 10. But to give you a little bit of background, we're going to go back a few lessons or a few weeks, a few chapters to the book of Omni, which is one chapter long. And we're going to learn a little bit of background about the characters involved. And, and then we're going to get right into the subject, the substance of our lesson. First of all, King Mosiah, the, the son of King Benjamin, is currently ruling over the city of Zarahemla. But if as we jump back into the book of Omni, we learn and, and a lot of people forget this. Many of you will remember it, but um, there was a Mosiah who was the father of King Benjamin. And he's often forgotten because, uh, as we discussed a few weeks ago, the portion of the of Nephi's large plates that, that presumably would have had a great deal of information about him have been lost. And so the only mention we have of Mosiah is here in the book of Omni, and a little bit in the address of King Benjamin, he says, My father, Mosiah, taught about the evil spirit, right? So Mosiah was a prophet king, and he presumably taught his people to avoid the influence of Satan. One of the things we learn here in the book of Omni, uh, first of all, in, in verse 12, we learn he was made king over the land of Zarahemla. So we know that Nephi was a Moses-like figure because he, uh, just like Moses, he brought his people from a land where they had lived in wickedness and oppression through a, a, a very trying wilderness crossing into a promised land and created a new civilization there. And similar to Moses and Nephi, Mosiah I brought his people out of 
the uh, the collected Nephite civilization, and presumably there was some sort of rift or schism among these people, and we can guess that it was a, a of a religious nature. We no longer want to follow the religion of our fathers, and all of you who do better get out. Or you know this, we don't know much about the circumstances under which Mos- uh, Mosiah the first and his people left, but we can presume. Uh, there was some hostility there. We can also presume there wasn't a ton of violence because you just can't take uh, thousands, what we can presume are thousands or maybe even tens of thousands of people out of a city in secret. And so we don't have uh, uh, an account here that they had war as they were leaving, but they did leave in a hurry. And one something else we know is that Mosiah somehow was the person who was able to bring out the, he's the one who kept the brass plates, the liahona, the other sacred relics, the sword of Laban that Nephi had always had with him. These were the marks of the birthright. These were um, uh, a royal heritage, you might say. And Mosiah ended up with them. Now we learn in the earlier on in the Book of Mormon that the kings, the, the descendants of Nephi that were kings over the people were called Nephi the first, first Nephi, second Nephi, etc., and so the fact that Mosiah is not called Nephi, and yet he is a king, shows that the, the main civilization stayed behind. So now we already have two ancient people that are uh, mentioned in this story. We have the, the Nephites who are left behind in the land of Nephi, where incidentally Nephite, Nephites have now lived continuously for almost 500 years. From the time that Nephi left the company of his brethren, and uh, fled into the wilderness and created a new city with a temple and everything. The Nephites have lived there continually. This has been their homeland. And if you want to know how um, these kind of people, and by these kind I mean people descended from the Old Testament people, Israelites, if you want to know how they regard the, the affection that they have for their homeland, what they see as their homeland, all you have to do is think of the phrase Middle East, and you will realize Uh, people in that part of the world, they're attached even to a small, seemingly insignificant plot of ground, and they can never let it go. It's in their hearts forever. If God has once promised it to them and given it to them, then they can never leave it behind emotionally. And that's what happens uh, in this week's lesson, is that Mosiah, even though Mosiah has found a new place where they can live in peace, there are people who cannot leave this uh, their their homeland that they loved for so many generations, they cannot leave it behind emotionally, and they have to return and find out what's going there. So here in the book of Omni, we have an, uh, an account of two expeditions that leave Zarahemla to return to the land of Nephi and once again gain possession over it. The first expedition is led by a very violent and wicked man, and we don't learn a ton about him here in the book of Omni. Now, if you go to the end uh of the, of the book of Omni, verse 27 through 30. There are four verses that talk about this, and that's it, And until we get to Mosiah chapter 7. But they're the same, they're, they're two different accounts of the same two expeditions. The first one leaves into the wilderness, and comes. they, they have a fight amongst themselves, and presumably there's a large number of them, uh, but they come back with only 50 men. They've killed each other off almost completely, and only 50 return to tell the tale. 
But somehow, the, this desire is so strong to go back to the land of Nephi that somehow they're able to raise enough support for a second expedition, and they take enough people with them to found a city, which is a large number of people. If you think about it, it's got to be at least 10,000 people, maybe more, maybe, maybe several times that. And uh, they go again into the wilderness. Um, they're led, as we discover in Mosiah chapter 7, they're led by a man named Zenith. Now, on the first expedition out... He had been a spy among the Lamanites, and he had come to love them to some extent. So their original purpose was to go and just conquer them. They were going to be conquistadors and take over the land. They were going to, through force of arms, conquer the land of their ancient inheritance and uh, maybe even by surprise attack. They were going to be the aggressors in a war. And Zenith, because of the things he'd seen about the Lamanites, he had some love for them. Uh, he wasn't willing to let that happen. And the the leader what did want to let that happen to the point where he was willing to kill Zenith in order to continue his war of conquest. And so there was a division. There it seems like pretty close to half of the people thought that they should go and kill the, the Lamanites unprovoked, and the other half thought that they shouldn't. Now, by unprovoked, what I mean is there was no immediate provocation, but the, the culture the, of, of ancient Near Eastern peoples would be, of course we've been provoked, we've been kicked out of our homeland. This is a genocide perpetrated upon us. And so any war um, in, in retribution is justified. So some of them thought they should uh, kill the Lamanites, and some of them thought that they shouldn't. They were willing to fight among themselves to the point of bloodshed in order to advance their respective views. Eventually, Zenith comes back with a second expedition and founds the city. And this is all mentioned here at the end of the Book of Omni. In fact, it is the final verse of the Book of Omni that, uh, where Amalekai, this final writer of the Small Plates of Nephi, the, the final verse of the Small Plates of Nephi deals with the, the fact that he misses his brother who left. These people have gone. They've gone to found a city back in our original homeland. And I don't know what happened to him. I never saw him again. So I don't know whether that's significant that it's the final verse of the small plates or not, but I thought I'd bring that up. Uh, it, I also thought I'd bring up some of the things we learn about Mosiah. We learn that he's a seer. There's a, a large stone brought to him. When his people merge with the people of Zarahemla, they bring him a stone. And we don't know the origin of the stone, whether it was carved by the people of Zarahemla, but the story of the stone deals with a man named Coriantumr, who we later, later learn is the final survivor of the Jaredites. Now, right away, you can tell. We have four major civilizations that have been mentioned just in this short passage. They have, we have the, the Lamanites. We have the two groups of Nephites, one group left behind in the land of Nephi, and one group that has been, uh, that has been separated from them, the people of Mosiah I. We have the people of Zarahemla, who they merged with. And then we have the Jaredites, I'm sorry, that's five major civilizations. So this is a very complicated uh, narrative at this point. And Mosiah, we learn that he's a seer because he can interpret a lost language. Uh, the people of Zarahemla are descendant, we learn, descended from uh, the same king that ruled Jerusalem when Lehi and Nephi came out of it. So even though they both left, both of these civilizations left Jerusalem within 10 years of each other, Almost 500 years before, they now have met up in the same time and place. At some point along the way, 
We don't know exactly where or when uh, the people of Zarahemla encountered this final survivor of the Jaredites. And then either they carved their story of Coriantumr, this survivor, into stone, or he had already carved it and he gave it to them. In either case, Mosiah is able to interpret it, and we learn a little bit about the Jaredites. Now, moving forward to Mosiah chapter 7. So this is now a third expedition returns to the land of the ancient land of, of Nephi, which is now called the land of Lehi-Nephi and the city of Lehi-Nephi. Now, if we, we can presume, again, this is a lost name. This is the first time we run across this name. We've always heard it called the land of Nephi, and now all of a sudden it's called the land of Lehi-Nephi. And we can presume in the lost manuscript that that name would have been introduced at some point, because it's not Mormon's way to just give us new names without any sort of explanation. The first time he brings a new name into the story, he gives an explanation around it and then later on just refers to it briefly. And so probably this name had a great history that is now lost. So the, the third expedition is led by one of the people of Zarahemla. It's not led by a Nephite, and this is actually, in my opinion, significant. Uh, it's not led by a Nephite. It's led by one of these new Zarahemla people who has no connection, incidentally, to the city of Lehi-Nephi. And he probably didn't have a large number of family members that went to claim this land because none of his family would have been connected to that land. So it's interesting that he would be the leader of this expedition because he, he doesn't have any sort of ancestral connection to the, to the land with, that they're going to find out about. Nevertheless, 16 of them make their way through the wilderness, they travel 40 days, and 40 is a number associated quite often in the scriptures with hardship and with privation. The Israelites were 40 years in the wilderness, and Jesus Christ, in a symbol to that wandering, he was 40 days in the wilderness being tempted of Satan. So again, they spend 40 days trying to get there, and they suffer a lot of things. As we learn, they don't know the way, so they ha sort of have to blunder their way through the wilderness. We can kind of tell the distance from that number. Um, now, we can make a few guesses. How, how long, how far can a person travel in one day? Somewhere between 10 and 20 miles, depending on the mountainous nature of the terrain, how much jungle there is, and they're not going in a straight line. They're sort of blundering around. So we can guess that uh, the land of Nephi and the city of Zarahemla are probably within two or three hundred miles of each other. Uh, that's just a, a rough number. But it lets you know that by today's standards, they're relatively close. By ancient standards, that's a fair distance. Um, also worth noting is that when the Israelites were carried into bondage, it took about 40 days to go between uh, Jerusalem and Babylon. And so there was some interchange uh, between the people of Jerusalem and Babylon after the exile, but not much. It was, uh, you know, hard. It was hard to send letters back and forth. They had some correspondence, but not a ton. It was. It wasn't easy, and a, a person born in Babylon was not likely to visit Jerusalem. So they're separated by enough time and distance that they're going to be two different civilizations from that point on, and somehow. Ammon and his people find the way there. And then four of them, the they leave the rest of them, the other 12, they leave them outside the city. Four of them make their way into the city. Incidentally, one of them is named Amalekai, and it's spelled exactly the same way that the final author of the book of Omni is spelled. 
And that leads me to wonder, maybe this is his grandson. Uh, he, he told his grandson, hey, look, you know, your great uncle uh, years ago went on an expedition. I never heard of what happened to him again, and you've been named after him. So I don't know whether that's true or not, but it's kind of interesting that those names would coincide. So what do they find? They, they actually are taken prisoner, and they're brought before the king, and the king says, I was going to kill you because you came upon me when I was vulnerable, but I'm curious about why you're here, and I've spared your life so that you can tell me why you're here before you die. Once more, we can learn something from this detail, and that is, presumably, again, that King Limhi, the current leader of this expatriate society from Zarahemla, uh, he has mistaken Ammon for a Lamanite. Otherwise, he would not be willing to kill him. He is so certain that Ammon is a Lamanite that he's willing to put him to death. Uh, this kind of, to me, it, it casts doubt on the idea that there was some sort of very clear racial difference between the Nephites and Lamanites, because apparently some of them, are, if not all of them, are totally indistingu- indistinguishable from each other. Uh, so that's an interesting idea, uh, because it's, it's not what we've been given to believe elsewhere. But Limhi learns that uh, they've come from Zarahemla to rescue them, and he immediately lets Ammon and his brethren know that his people want to escape, that they're under bondage, they're being taxed 50% of everything that they create, and they're practically slaves to the Lamanites. So they've been slain and captured and subjugated. So this brings up one of the themes of this lesson, which is subjugation and bondage. Now, in the Old Testament, this would be similar to the exile of the Israelites. Now, the symbolism of exile, uh, if, if the ancient Israelites being brought into the promised land is a form of birth, it's, it's the first manifestation of the covenant of Abraham being fulfilled. So it's the birth of them as a people, of the Israelites as a people. The, the people of God has been, have been created. If that's the case, then exile is similar to death. And so we'll come back to this idea of subjugation and exile and birth and creation. And we learn, one of the things we learn, incidentally, is that uh, exile and death are not permanent. In scriptural terms, God has never intended death to be forever. And that's a really interesting idea. So in any case, they're living in this, uh, similar to the Babylonian captivity, where they are a captive people, and they exist at the pleasure of, of another people who derive most of their material gain from the captured Israelites, from the captured people of the covenant. Um, and so Limhi gathers his people and he says, look, everybody, here are some explorers from the land of Zarahemla. We've tried to find Zarahemla before, and we didn't know where to go, but now we do. And so I'm going to give you all a speech that will motivate you and inform you as to our reasons for leaving and our, and our reasons for being in the situation we're in. So we can also, the fact that Limhi spends so much time doing this, we can also gather that maybe there was some difference of opinion among his people. Or should we leave or should we stay here? Uh, we spent so much effort to get here. But the general consensus seems to be, yes, we're willing to leave because we are so miserable. The Lamanites are so awful to us. Now, we learn about Limhi that he is quite a scriptorian. And I, I use that word uh, deliberately. 
The first thing that gives me that impression is he uses Exodus language. So he calls his people together and he makes a speech to them. And in uh, verse 19 of Mosiah chapter 7, he, he calls God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he says, the God who brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, and he describes the Exodus. So he uses Exodus language, which is very, very common. It has a rich history among the Israelites. Uh, the Exodus is used as a way to inspire faith and has been from the time of the Exodus all the way up until the present. Nephi also used it quite a bit. You remember that he used that language to inspire his brothers to build a ship. Uh, and the point is, God has created this, or has performed this amazing miracle uh, for our people at some point in the past. This miracle was so great that it can be used to inspire faith forever. That's what the Exodus is. And in similar, he uses similar language to describe the Exodus of Nephi out of Jerusalem. So that right there tells me that he believes in the scriptures, much like Nephi did. He uh, he makes an effort to apply the scriptures in his own life. Uh, this continues later on. Now, he, he describes what a terrible situation they find themselves in regarding the Lamanites, but then he also says, we've killed a prophet of the Lord. He's referring to Abinadi, whom we'll learn about in a few chapters. And finally, he starts to quote scripture. And this is a, an assumption we have to make. It's very interesting because in verse 29, the verse reads like this. For behold, this is, uh, again, Limhi talking to his people. For behold, the Lord hath said, colon, I will not succor my people in the day of their transgression, but I will hedge up their ways that they prosper not, and their doings shall be as a stumbling block before them. So in other words, if you want God's help, but you're working contrary to God's will, he's instead going to hinder you. This convention where it says the Lord hath said and then a colon, this is exactly the convention used in the King James Version of the Bible when a quotation is implied. So the King James Version doesn't use quote marks. Those are um, a more modern innovation in grammar and in punctuation. But that is how the King James Version would have a direct quotation. And so this is following, we can only presume that Joseph Smith was following the convention of the scriptures that he knew best and uh, is implying here a direct quotation. Now, I did as much research as I could on this, and I can't find the verse that this is quoting from. And the footnotes do a pretty good job here of giving us some examples of similar verses in the Old Testament that if Limhi were paraphrasing, those, those are the verses he'd be paraphrasing from. But I don't get that impression. I get the impression this is a direct quote. So it's a scriptural idea that he's expressing, but he's quoting a scripture that we don't have. So there are a couple of, uh, there are three different conclusions we can come to. One is, he's not quoting, but he is paraphrasing. Number two, he's quoting from a scripture that is in the brass plates, but is not in our modern Old Testament. Finally, he's quoting from a scripture that was in the large plates of Nephi that Mormon has included, and he doesn't feel like he has to um, explain where this quotation is coming from because he's already included it in the earlier part of his abridgment, but it's been lost to us. So uh, my, own, my own idea is that it's one of the latter two. This is actually a quote and not a paraphrase, and he, because he does it three times in a row. So verses 29, 30, and 31, are all, they all seem to be direct quotations from Scripture, and none of them have an exact match 
in our existing Old Testament or Book of Mormon scriptures. To me, that's very interesting. And if I were Joseph Smith and I were making up the Book of Mormon, I would never do this, right? I would, I would actually include a biblical quotation, one that was uh, had in modern scripture so that uh, we could show the character of Limhi. I wouldn't have Limhi pretend to quote a scripture that didn't really exist. Uh, and so that's one of the one of the many. There, there are several. I'm not going to draw attention to all of them. There are several, even in just today's lesson, little details that tend to reinforce the idea that this is not a work of fiction. And the reason I bring that up is the Book of Mormon will, will never be proven to be an ancient record until the time comes. Uh, let me put it another way. God wants us to choose whether we believe in the Book of Mormon. And if we are willing to believe in it, then we're willing to pray about it, we're willing to follow our belief, and eventually that belief becomes testimony when it's confirmed and, and ratified by the, and brought home to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. But it will never be proven beyond a doubt. There will always be a choice in the question of whether to believe. And because of that, um, each of us can have a challenge to that belief from time to time. And for me, I find it helpful when I have a challenge to my belief that something that says, gosh, that doesn't seem to reinforce the idea of the Book of Mormon being true, then I think, look at this mountain of evidence that I have that the Book of Mormon is an ancient record. To me, this is one of those uh, little, one of these little rocks that make up the mountain of evidence, which is that if I were composing the Book of Mormon and my intent was to have it accepted as fact, I would not use scriptures that didn't exist I would use biblical quotations, and then I would draw attention to them. Instead, these are inserted, as are other uh, what you might call proofs or evidences in today's lesson. They're inserted and sort of left there for us to pick up on and find as hidden clues. And the reason for that is Joseph Smith had no idea that they were clues. He just knew that he was translating words. Uh, he later on, I imagine, came to have some great understanding upon their import, but even he probably didn't understand everything there was to know about how the Book of Mormon pointed to biblical tradition. And so these are these are just historical evidences for us to uncover and for us to find. And this is one of them, that there seem to be uh, references here to what are called lost manuscripts or lost scriptures. And that is also a biblical tradition. We have several uh, examples of that in the existing Old Testament and in the New, as well as elsewhere in the Book of Mormon. And so this fits very well in with the with scriptural tradition and if it were being deliberately employed, it would be a very sophisticated technique, one that would require a lot of revision and planning, which we have no evidence that Joseph Smith ever engaged in. In other words, the Book of Mormon is internally consistent beyond any expectation of a book that was written by one person. I just, I just could not believe that it would be this internally consistent. Another big piece of evidence for me is that nowhere does Joseph Smith or does the author of the Book of Mormon draw attention to these things as being evidence? And I'll talk a little bit more about that when we talk about one of these pieces of evidence from the next chapter. But they are sort of thrown away almost. Uh, they seem to imply a very strong connection to the Old Testament, as you would expect. And yet, nowhere does anybody say, do you see? Do you see what I've done here? Look at how powerful an evidence this is. It's just it's just inserted in the text, as you would expect from an ancient history, because of course they know that they are the cultural descendants of Old Testament civilization. So we have verses 29 through 32 
uh, I'm sorry, 29 through 31, we have little paraphrases, but no exact quotes. And we don't know the scriptures that uh, were the antecedents of these quotations. But in verse 33, King Limhi says something interesting. He says, if you will turn to the Lord with full purpose of heart. Now, this is a verse where it doesn't appear to be a quotation. And so we can guess that he might be paraphrasing. If you will turn to the Lord with full purpose of heart and put your trust in him and serve him with all diligence of mind, if you do this, he will, according to his own will and pleasure, deliver you out of bondage. Now, that word turn gives us a key word that we can search on. For me, I feel relatively certain that this is uh, a clear paraphrase of Deuteronomy chapter 30. And this is one of the final promises of Moses to the Israelites. He says to them, if you're ever subjugated, and you've ever lost a battle, and you've been uh, made a, a tributary people, and you're in slavery and bondage, and you turn to the Lord, and you ask him for help, then, and if you've, if you've been scattered, if you've been mistreated, if you've been exiled, if you turn to the Lord, then he will gather you again if you're repentant. So I encourage you to read Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 10, and see for yourselves how Mosiah chapter 7, verse 33, is uh, an absolutely expert paraphrase. It's a, it's a very, very skillful adaptation of this passage in Deuteronomy to the situation of the modern Nephites. And it could only be done by someone who is uh, a very gifted scriptural teacher. So Limhi is not only a scriptorian himself, but he is also a, a, a teacher of the scriptures. And Limhi, so this leads me to the conclusion that Limhi, like Mosiah I, like Benjamin, and lo, like Mosiah II, is very familiar with what we've called the paragraph of kings. Now, you remember we mentioned this last week. The paragraph of kings is this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 17, where it describes, so many places in Deuteronomy it describes, here's what you, the Israelites, as a people Here's what you all have to do. But the paragraph of Kings says, here is what the kings of the Israelites have to do. Very specifically, it's direction just for the king. And this paragraph of Kings is spiritual duties and requirements of a monarch if he wants to have God on his side. And we have this, there is a lot of evidence in these two chapters, Mosiah chapter 7 and 8, the, the two chapters that deal with Limhi, there's a lot of evidence that he has complied with the paragraph of Kings. I want to read you uh, Deuteronomy chapter 17, just the verses that deal with the scriptures. It shall be, this is uh, Deuteronomy 17, 18, and it's talking about the king of Israel in the future. It shall be when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the priests and the Levites. And it shall be with him that he shall read therein all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all the words of this law and these statutes to do them. So it was one of the duties of an ancient Israelite king that he would take the scriptures that were had by the priests, make his own copy, and then read it every day. The rest of his life, as long as he was king, he had to read from the scriptures, from the, from the copy that he had made with his own hand, he had to read that copy every day. So he would be very, very knowledgeable in the scriptures. And Limhi has just shown us a number of instances where he is familiar with and compliant with this teaching from the paragraph of Kings. Now in chapter 8, 
Ammon tells the people of uh, Limhi, he, he tells them the messages that King Benjamin taught that we discussed last week. Uh, in other words, he describes the new covenant of Jeremiah. And Limhi had heard this previously from Ammon. And I feel certain that Limhi had recognized that what Benjamin had taught was the fulfillment of prophecy, this ancient prophecy of Jeremiah, that one day God would create a new covenant among his people, and it would be uh, a covenant where they would all know the Lord and would agree to do his will. Now, uh, the reason I bring this up is, now every group of Nephites has had this preached to them. As we will learn in the coming chapters, uh, there is a group of people from this civilization who've left. They're in the wilderness right now. We don't know where they are. But... They've been taught by Alma, and they've been taught a similar message. Alma has taught them uh, what we would know today as the covenant of baptism, but what they would have thought of then as the new covenant of Jeremiah. So Alma came up with it independently. Benjamin came up with it independently. And now here are the people of Limhi hearing the same message. So all of the Nephites now, all of those who are willing to believe, uh, have been taught of this new insight it's like it could not be repressed. It's almost like uh, these different prophets, they all have a similar source for the wisdom that they're getting from heaven. Uh, and I say that with a little bit of joke because, of course, they're, they all have the source of, of God. God is telling them it's time for them all to learn about the Lord. And so God is helping each of them in their scattered locations to receive the same truth. So after Limhi speaks and then Ammon speaks and tells them of the teachings of King Benjamin, then everyone goes home. And there's no uh, specific plan made, but the idea is they're all willing now to leave the land of Nephi because uh, the Lamanites have made them so miserable. And now is the time for Ammon to learn what's been going on. Uh, and <laughs> this is interesting because Mormon here employs a well-known narrative technique, but uh, one that um, would have been quite innovative in his time, and that is the flashback, or what's also called analepsis. The idea that at some point, one of the characters in the story narrates events that have already passed, uh, that are past. So we're learning about characters in the past, but now we're going to the past of the past. It's very easy for us to get in touch with this with this flashback because it's such a common narrative technique in modern storytelling in modern film and in literature, but back then in scriptural times, not very common, very innovative by, by Mormon. And again, I bring this up because it complicates the narrative structure. This is a, a flashback to an event that has already been mentioned, as we saw in the book of Omni. And so there has to be internal consistency between what's going on here. And I also bring it up because it's just beautifully done. Uh, it's a wonderful flashback, and the story really wouldn't have made sense to tell it in any other way. But that begins in chapter 9. We're still in chapter 8. One of the things we learn in chapter 8 is that Limhi, in looking for the land of Zarahemla, actually encountered the homeland of the Jaredites. And the, the explorers that he sent, rather than returning with news of Zarahemla, they returned with news of this dead civilization, and they returned with records that they can't read. They also return with some artifacts, and these artifacts are of a people who as, are described here as large. So one of the things we know about the Jaredites from modern revelation is that they were larger in stature, even than modern-day people. And modern-day people uh, are generally agreed by anthropologists to be larger than historical people, that people just over time tend to get taller 
it seems, from the archaeological record. Nevertheless, uh, we have record in the Book of Mormon and from Joseph Smith that the Jaredites were even larger than modern people, which is the opposite of what you would expect. One of the evidences of this is that the Urim and Thummim that Joseph Smith had, we learn in the Doctrine and Covenants, it comes from the Jaredites. And the indication seems to be, the inference seems to be in the references to it that we do have, that it was too large for Joseph Smith's face. Uh, the Urim and Thummim take the form of almost like a pair of spectacles. Um, this is a little bit not part of our lesson, but we do learn about interpreters today, so I wanted to bring it up. The interpreters were a Urim and Thummim, which means in Hebrew, lights and perfections. They're called in the Book of Mormon just interpreters, and we know that the brother of Jared created one. It's a heavenly artifact that allows a seer, somebody who, like Mosiah the first, is able to interpret an ancient language or to make things known that, el that otherwise could not have been made known. It's um, an artifact, it's a, an item from God that through which a prophet is able to see heavenly truth. And the evidence seems to be that the spectacles that would fit on a Jaredite head were just slightly too large for comfort on Joseph Smith's head, which is presumably one of the reasons why he used a seer stone uh, later on in his translation of the Book of Mormon uh, in preference to the to the Urim and Thummim because it was easier. He didn't have to fit this, these large pair of spectacles onto his face. So King Limhi now learns what a seer is from Ammon. Ammon says, yeah, Mosiah II, Mosiah the grandson of the Mosiah you knew, uh, he also has, he still has these interpreters and he can... I guarantee you that when we bring these plates back, he's going to be able to interpret them. And Limhi is blown away by the idea of a seer. He says, a seer is greater than a prophet. And Ammon says, well, seers can make things known that are about the past, about the present, about the future, but things that would not have been made known by any other way, they do it by the power of God. And greater power, no one can have. Now, Limhi is... is um, inspired by this to make uh, another scriptural type statement. And this is the final uh, words we have from Limhi in today's lesson, the end of Mosiah chapter 8. He says, how, how marvelous are the works of the Lord, how long doth he suffer with his people, and how blind and impenetrable are the understandings of the children of men. For they will not seek wisdom, neither do they desire that she should rule over them. This is another dead giveaway. Uh, when he refers to wisdom as a she, I remember having a question about this on my mission. I thought, that is odd, that he should call wisdom a she. My, my mission president, was uh, he, his full-time job before his mission was as an institute instructor and administrator. And so he was a scriptorian of the first order, but his native language was Portuguese. And in Portuguese, there is nothing at all out of the ordinary about calling wisdom a she because it's a feminine noun. So I asked him this question. I'm like, why does it say she? And he's like, well, of course it says she. He'd never thought about it because he'd only read the scriptures in Portuguese. Uh, and so I, for years, I, I wondered about this. I thought, why would he say she should rule over them? We just don't find that sort of thing anywhere else in the Book of Mormon. It wasn't until recently that I understood. In the Bible, wisdom is a she. If you read Proverbs chapter 8. So I'm going to back up a little further. When we read John chapter 1, we learn about something called the Word. 
And the word is an aspect of God that is very common in Jewish thought for centuries. So the word is this aspect of God that can be understood, perceived by men. In the beginning was the word. And the word had a part, as John describes it, uh, had a part of creation. If you go to Proverbs chapter 8, we learn of another aspect of God. This one was also present in creation and is one of the prized characteristics of God to the point where it's been personified. But the gender of this personification, rather than being male, is female. And uh, it's referred to in the Bible several times. It is clear that it's a cultural understanding that the wisdom of God is a she that watches over men. So here's how Limhi understood that. He says again, How blind and impenetrable are the understandings of the children of men. For they will not seek wisdom, neither do they desire that she should rule over them. A very, very rational and common thing for an Old Testament scholar to say. And yet, in the Book of Mormon itself, no attention is drawn to this. No explanation is given as to why Limhi would have called the, uh, the wisdom of God she. It's just this very strange and obscure saying that happens to agree perfectly with the character of Limhi, and it it is exactly how he would have expressed this very same idea. The final verse in in Mosiah chapter 8 reads like this. He's still describing his people. They are as a wild flock which fleeth from the shepherd and scattereth and are driven and devoured by the beasts of the forest. Now this seemed to me again like a scriptural reference, so I did a little bit of research. And it turns out He's not quoting, as far as I can determine, from any particular verse, but he's expressing a common idea from the Old Testament prophets that the the covenant people of God are his flock. They are like sheep. Now, I'm going to bring up a few references. First uh, Kings 22, 17, when the king of Israel, the wicked king of Israel, He wants a prophet to tell him, yes, you're going to go up and prevail in battle. He asks all of his prophets and they all say yes. And then the prophet of Jehovah says, actually, uh, the people of Israel are going to be scattered like sheep with no shepherd. And so uh, there's there's one instance of a prophet talking about people after being uh, defeated in battle, they're going to have no shepherd. In Psalm 100, we are the sheep of God's pasture. That is the, the people of Israel, the covenant people. We are, he is the shepherd and we are the sheep. Uh, there are a number of psalms that, that talk about this. A very clear parallel is in Jeremiah, again, a, a verse that is, or I'm sorry, a prophet that is obviously well known to Limhi because it was very important to him that Ammon relate Benjamin's address. And my presumption is that the reason it was so important to him to have Ammon share what he'd learned from King Benjamin was because he recognized in it the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy about a new covenant. But that's just that's just my presumption. However, uh, there is a clear parallel between Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 17, and here in Mosiah, the final verse of chapter 8. Uh, There is a wild flock which fleeth from the shepherd and scattereth and are driven and devoured by the beasts of the forest. I'm now going to paraphrase for you from Jeremiah chapter 50. Israel is scattered and devoured by beasts, which are the foreign powers, the Assyrians and the Babylonians. But it is followed by a promise of restoration. 
So it's interesting because they've been scattered and devoured, which means they've been killed. You don't have your flock killed by beasts and then get your flock back. Either they've been killed or they're alive. But in Jeremiah chapter 50, they've been scattered by beasts, they've been eaten by lions, and then God will restore them to their lands. Um, Now, we don't learn this for a while, um, but King Limhi is actually quoting a prophet that we haven't heard about yet, and that is the prophet Abinadi. So in Mosiah chapter 17, we're going to learn, Abinadi prophesies, this people will be like a wild flock that is scattered and eaten by beasts. So, this is an interesting pronouncement by Abinadi because it contains with it a curse, but with the promise of a blessing. The curse is obvious, that they're going to be scattered. So, the scattering of a flock is 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 symbolic, uh, again, of exile and death. And that is the worst thing that can happen to Israel. So, the metaphor of Israel as a people, their history, is a metaphor for each of our lives. Uh, this is this is fairly obvious from the scriptures that we are to liken ourselves to the history of Israel, and so when they are brought into the promised land, when they are uh, brought through the Red Sea, this is a baptism. When they are brought into the promised land, this is a covenant. When they are faithful to Jehovah, this is a marriage, and when they are exiled, this is a death. When they are gathered again, this is a resurrection. So these are the events in the history of Israel that correspond to the events in our in all of our eternal progression. And uh, here he is making reference to the resurrection. He's saying, uh, Abinadi was saying that the the people will be scattered like a flock, but the fact that he said it the way he said it, it was probably a reference to Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah, the promise is, even though they're scattered, they will be gathered again. Uh, finally, this is a this is possibly a reference to Isaiah 53. Now remember that scriptures for the people of the New Testament were the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, the most commonly cited scripture as evidence of Jesus Christ's atonement is Isaiah chapter 53. It was their scriptures pointing to the the mission and life and ultimate fate of Jesus Christ. And as we'll find out in the weeks to come, Abinadi taught in profound and prophetic detail about every aspect of Isaiah chapter 53. And in that chapter, uh, we read, All we like sheep have gone astray, and yet there will come a shepherd who will uh, heal us and gather us, and through his stripes we are made whole. We are brought back again into the fold of God. And so, even though the promise is left unspoken by Abinadi, the fact that he calls them scattered sheep Uh, If we know the scriptures, then we know the promise that the scattered sheep will again be restored. And so here is Limhi speaking about his people. This is at once a, uh, a manifestation of his scriptural knowledge. Number two, it's a curse and a rebuke. But finally, it's the promise of a blessing. So it's a, it's a prayer for deliverance. It's an expression of the hope on the part of Limhi that now the time has finally come for his people to stop being scattered and driven and devoured by beasts and be uh, gathered again by the shepherd of the sheep. Okay, that brings us to the flashback, which is the, the record of Zenith. And Zenith tells the story of how he really wanted to return to the land of Nephi. Again, because they fill this this almost compulsory draw towards their ancestral homeland. 
and the, he tells the story of the first expedition where they fight, and all of this agrees with the very uh, cursory account in Omni, but it gives us more details. So they go into the wilderness, and it turns out that Zenith is the one around whom all of these events are revolving. He is the one who first expressed a reluctance to be the aggressor against the Lamanites, and their king being a bloodthirsty man, he ordered that Zenith would be put to death. And there were people who were willing to fight to the death to protect Zenith, and there were people who were willing to fight to the death to kill him. And so then, naturally, uh, because they were both groups were willing to fight to the death, they killed each other. And only 50 of them survived, as we learned in Omni. And uh, this heartbreaking uh, statement by Zenith says, uh, we killed each other and then we, they were all dead and we had to return home and relate that story to their wives and children. And so they had this terrible uh, reckoning where they had to go back to Zarahemla and say, uh, we, we all killed each other. Somehow, again, this is, this is just an indication of their feverish desire to possess this land. Somehow, he raises enough support for a second expedition. And thousands of people had to be part of it because they went in such numbers that uh, they, they could form their own city, their own civilization that would be cut off from Zarahemla. They weren't dependent on trade and supplies. Interesting thing is that on the second expedition, Zenith goes in with just a few people to the king of the, of the land. We don't know whether he is one of the former Nephites who stayed behind when Mosiah I left, or whether he was one of the Lamanites who came in afterward. But his name is King Laman. And Zenith says, hey, by the way, would you mind if we had this city and you guys left. And, and Layman says, yeah, sure, we'll leave. This is, to me, the most interesting part of the entire story. There has got to be so much here that we just do not have any indication of. We don't know what's going on. Because you would expect the answer would be uh, no and get out of our land. But instead, um, what Zenith says is it's part of his cunning. He wanted to bring us under his control. But if that's the case, I, I actually... I can't quite see that because if that's the case, he was he was in it for the really long con, as they call it. They leave the the Lamanites leave immediately the city so that the Nephites can move in, but then they don't come back for twelve years. So it's it's Zenith's idea that this was all the cunning of King Laman that that he would leave and then they would put the Nephites under sub, uh, subjection, but. It takes so long for them to come back that I, I can't actually think that that was his motivation. I kind of think that what happened is the, the ancestral homeland was more important to this group of Nephites than it was to the Nephites who remained behind, who eventually became Lamanites. And so then a, a large number of them had probably just left. And so there were probably not very many people in the city of Nephi. And when Zenith shows up with a host and says, can we have the land? King Laman thought, if I don't get out of here, I'm dead. That's, that's kind of my assumption about what's going on. And so he agrees to leave, but he's angry about it. And so he stays brooding in the wilderness until he thinks he can uh, muster enough strength to come and kill the Nephites. And so they do. Now, this is where we get the title of the lesson, because when the Nephites defend themselves 12 years later, and then again 22 years after that, they do it in the strength of the Lord. Now, what does the strength of the Lord mean? It's interesting because when we read that, we just think, oh, they probably prayed before they went to battle. But 
I took a minute and thought about what are the differences between the Nephites and the Lamanites in this battle, and uh, what are the differences about their reasons for fighting? And so here are the differences that I identified. First of all, the Nephites weren't the aggressors in the battle. And they have, in addition to that, they have the wealth and prosperity that makes them the target. So you notice it's not the, the Nephites who want what the Lamanites have. It's the Lamanites who want what the Nephites have because the Nephites have been working hard and they've had God on their side to help them to prosper and create something worth conquering. The Nephites are employing vigilance to protect themselves. They have guards and they have constant watch. They also have been creating weapons and stockpiles of supplies. They have a clear defense plan. And so when the Lamanites attack um, King Zenith, he puts his people, he puts the women and children, he hides them in the wilderness, and then he arranges the men according to their age and their suitability for battle. And because of this, when the on, on both occasions, the Nephites enjoy a, a completely outsized ratio of casualties to the Lamanites. More than 10 to 1, they kill the Lamanites to, their, uh, to the number of their own death. Uh, there's over 3,000 dead Lamanites to less than 300 dead Nephites. Now that is just an amazing, amazing ratio. It's not just, and I, and I don't say that this had no effect, but it's not just because the Nephites were willing to pray before they went to battle. When they go up in the strength of the Lord, it includes all of these things. It includes the fact that they weren't the aggressors, that they didn't have uh, the desire of conquest and wealth and, and bloodthirst in order to motivate them to fight. It was because they wanted to defend their own rights. And they were the ones who had been working hard and created something of value. And they were willing to protect it by vigilance and by stockpiles and by planning. So this is the strength of the Lord, um, in my opinion, just as much as having faith and praying and allowing uh, the, the power of God to overcome their fear of battle and then strengthening them, actually giving them probably physical strength during the battle. Now, that was doubtless a part of their victory, but just as doubtless is the fact that they had all these other things going for them. It's kind of like the oil of the uh, ten virgins, right? These are things that are stored up over a long period of time, drop by drop, and they can't be shared with the Lamanites because the Lamanites aren't willing to make the same choices as the, as the Nephites. If they were, there would have been no reason to fight. So what do we learn about the beliefs of the Lamanites? They believe as is related in Mosiah chapter 10, the Lamanites, their only clear belief is that their forefathers were wronged repeatedly by Nephi. So they were the, the victims of being kicked out of Jerusalem. They were the victims as they traveled towards the, the land of Bountiful. They were the victims as Nephi was constructing a ship. And again, they were the victims on the water and they were victims of his theft when they arrived in the new world and uh, Nephi ran off with the plates. So this shows us the harm of an evil tradition, but it also shows us the nature of an evil tradition. So the evil tradition of the Lamanites is that they had been acted upon in a predatory way. Laman and Lemuel, poor me, poor me, I'm Laman and Lemuel, and my little brother Nephi keeps mistreating me. And they take this grievance, that this ancient grievance, and they make it permanent by teaching it to their children. So let's examine the nature of the grievance. All right, so Nephi and his brothers, they actually, as we discussed at the time, they could not have been forced by Nephi to leave Jerusalem. They, they left willingly. Nephi did not hold them at the point of the sword and make them leave. 
they were willing to leave. Uh, they were just willing to complain about it the whole time. They weren't willing to come up with a plan uh, where they were going to go do their own thing. They followed their father. They followed their little brother when their little brother had a good idea. When their little brother was out there killing food, they were willing to eat it. Now, there was some element of compulsion when they built the ship because Nephi did shock them, and they had uh, an indication the power of God was, was sort of prodding them along. But other than that, uh, they arrive in the New World, and Laman and Lemuel are going to kill Nephi because they say he has usurped the leadership over us. But all they had to do was not listen, and they could have had their own leadership. So it's so interesting because Nephi left, and this was the ultimate cause of their grievance, was that he stole the governance of the people. But the only governance that, that Nephi stole was the governance over people who chose to follow him into the wilderness. What he wasn't, what Nephi was not willing to do was to sit around and let his brothers kill him. So the fact that he left, they were so angry, but they were going to kill him. And this, uh, and basically this mindset, it reduces down to the idea that I'm angry because you wouldn't let me kill you. You can see how much sense this makes, right? This makes absolutely no sense. There's no reason for anger here. Of course, somebody else isn't going to let you kill them. And this is, and nevertheless, this idea still has its manifestations today. And it's not necessarily murder that makes people angry, but basically this, you'll, you'll find this in political philosophies uh, across the political spectrum. You, I'm angry because you wouldn't let me take your rights away. And that is Satan's philosophy in a nutshell. I'm angry with God because he wouldn't let me take away the rights of his children. So you can see how Laman and Lemuel got their philosophy directly from Satan and how they passed it along to their children. You can also see, if you're looking for it now, you can see it manifesting itself all over the world in today's political philosophies. And people are still willing to follow this crazy idea that one person has the absolute right to take the rights of another person away just because they want to. You wouldn't let me take your rights away. That makes me angry. Whenever you see that, you can understand that it is Satan's philosophy at play. In 2 Nephi chapter 2, the, that great chapter where Lehi is explaining the law of opposition and the fall of Adam and Eve, a couple of times he says very clearly, uh, in verse 16 and in verse 26, he says, it was given unto man not to be acted upon, but to act for himself. And so it's obvious that the power of God and the plan of God is for us to choose for ourselves and to assist in the creation of our own lives in the course of our lives the way we once assisted in the creation of the world. So God has made us to be creators, and therefore he has given unto us, unlike any of his other creations, he's given unto us to direct the course of our own existence. And that is one of the rights we have that no one else can take away. And it doesn't matter whether they're angry or not, as is the case with Satan, for example. Uh, their anger is irrelevant to the fact that we are still creators, and we have the power to create our own lives and to act for ourselves. And this is the, this is the lesson uh, that Zenith makes by giving us the philosophy of the Lamanites, that basically they are held, they are in bondage of their own. So even though the Nephites are in bondage to the Lamanites, the Lamanites are the ones in bondage to this philosophy that they are not empowered to act for themselves. So either, even though the Nephites are physically 
captive. Spiritually, they have the strength of the Lord because they believe that they are creators and they are the ones who can act rather than be acted upon. So understand there's a powerful message here about bondage, which is that bondage exists in our own mind more than it does. And we're going to learn even more about this in the in the weeks to come. But bondage is, exists in our own mind even more than it exists outside of us. A helpful reminder during the, the time of quarantine and pandemic that when we do battle in the strength of the Lord, we follow the example of Limhi. Limhi was willing to read the scriptures and believe the promises that had been made so many times that even though his people were a a wild flock that had been scattered and driven and devoured by wild beasts, that in that very curse was held the promise of a future restoration when God would gather his people, restore them, and give them a final resurrection. So once again, underneath what appears on the surface to be a simple story of some expeditions into the wilderness, we find profound spiritual lessons, a complex narrative involving several ancient civilizations firmly grounded in the fertile soil of the Old Testament. We would expect no less from the inspired record of the Book of Mormon. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Holt. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.